You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. Merry Christmas. I mean, sorry. I got confused with the weather a little bit outside. Happy New Year, everybody. Anyone excited to be worshiping God to start off the new year? Amen. This is the first Sunday of the new year. I'm so excited. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at Hill City Church. I'm so excited for this teaching series, Rebuild the Ruins. As we come around the new year, I know many, many people are making New Year's resolutions. Anyone still doing that? No? Okay, a few people out there, right? I, I kind of feel like every increasing year I ask people, hey, what are you doing in the new year? And some people are like, I gave up on that a long time ago. Uh, but I believe every day, we believe that God's mercies are new every morning. And anytime we come around and, and ask that question, you know, there's nothing magical necessarily about the clock striking midnight on New Year's Eve. Our hope is not in the date at the end of the calendar. And yet, I believe every day, what if we were to begin to ask, what is the new thing that God wants to do in my life? And so anytime we can ask that question, whether it's a new year or not, I think it's a significant question to consider. I came across uh, this week uh, a, a, a statistic from Forbes magazine, and it shows some of the top New Year's resolutions. Maybe you can resonate with some of these. Number, well, starting at number five was to improve diet. Uh, number four, uh, lose weight. You might notice a, a, a common thread in some of these. Number three, improve mental health. Number two, improve finances, and no surprise here, number one, improve fitness, right? And as you look at maybe some of those are, you know, some of the most prevalent New Year's resolutions, one of the things that struck me was most of our resolutions are an attempt to rebuild something that we've lost. Think about that for just a moment. I mean, maybe there's some of you who are overachievers, and you, you try to think about, I've never done this before, and I'm going to set an ambitious goal for the new year. If that's you, that's amazing, right? The Lord bless you on, on that journey. But for most people, if you look at these, the top New Year's resolutions, somebody who wants to improve their fitness, likely at one point, they were more fit. And so you, we use that in our language. I'm trying to get back in shape. For somebody who maybe their finances aren't looking great, maybe there's a little bit too much spending over the holiday season, I'm trying to make some money back. You know, think about somebody who's trying to quit smoking cigarettes. There was likely a time in their life, even if it was when they were really young, that they're trying to get back to that. And really, each of those, and the concept of New Year's resolution, really illustrates this idea of rebuilding. And so we are uh, starting off this brand new teaching series called Rebuild the Ruins, and it's about the literal rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, which took place uh, surrounding the life and leadership of Nehemiah in 445 BC. Last year, we started off in a teaching series called Exiles. Anyone remember that? Anyone around for that? Exiles teaching series? Uh, it is, no joke, my favorite teaching series we have ever done as a church, and you can go back if you want to listen or watch those. You can always find those uh, online on YouTube, on podcast there. And one of the things I really like to do is not just uh, go through these topical series, but even to look at the Old Testament and learn a little bit of history. 
and kind of grow in our biblical literacy. And so this teaching series actually follows right off the heels of that exiles teaching series, where we're going to be looking at the post-exilic period for the kingdom of Israel. And I'm super excited to jump into Nehemiah. We're actually going to be getting to Nehemiah next week in chapter one. Today, what I want to do is I want to set up this concept of rebuilding the ruins. So here's how it's going to go today. We're going to look at two fires and one dream. You ready for that? Two fires and one dream. We're going to be starting off in 2 Kings chapter 25. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, the verses will be on the screen. Our main teaching text, 2 Chronicles 7, we'll get there in just a minute. The first fire is the fire that took place in 586 B.C., and this is the siege of Jerusalem. 2 Kings 25 recounts these events. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was in the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and the king's house, that's the palace, and the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. I want to show you a picture. This is a 19th century painting of these events. Obviously, there were no photographs in 586 B.C., but just look at this. Reflect on this for just a moment. This is just one artist's depiction of the scene that would have taken place. Where do you see yourself in the picture? I mean, imagine that you were there. You were living in Jerusalem, and the city had been under siege by the Babylonian Empire, the most fierce world superpower in its day. And finally, they break down the walls, and they're executing family members, members of the royal house. King Zedekiah actually has his own sons killed before his very eyes as the very last thing he saw before his own eyes were gouged out, and he was led away in shackles to Babylon. I know this is not a happy New Year way, way to start the New Year, okay? But it's important that we set up this fire. If there's something to be rebuilt, we have to acknowledge something was torn down, something was lost, something lies in ruins. And if you were there, and this was your homeland, not only your homeland, but think about the theological significance. The covenant that God made with the nation of Israel hinges on the promised land. There's this significance between God giving the people this land, and now it seems like God has taken it away. And if you were there, and you were one of the people to survive this siege, you would be walking off into the unknown, likely to become a slave, and you look back over your shoulder at the great city of Jerusalem. The temple is burned, the palace is burned, the walls are torn down, and all you see is a pile of rubble as smoke rises from the ashes. 
Now, that's likely a situation that, many, uh, that none of us will ever have to face. And yet, I want to give you a, a, a more modern example that maybe helps put this into our framework of the significance that something like this would have been. Uh, the Maui fire that took place over the summer. Have you seen pictures or news reports of the Maui fire? Uh, there were dozens of people killed. The death toll actually continued to rise for weeks after, simply because they found more and more people's bodies. Uh, hundreds of homes lost and billions of dollars in damage. I actually spoke with someone from our church who visited Maui for their honeymoon, and they spent part of the time relaxing and part of the time in service work. And one of the takeaways as I, as I talked to her about her experience is she had this, this, this line, it's going to take years to rebuild what was lost. It's going to take years the devastation. And I just want to, I just, thinking about that picture of the city of Jerusalem or the Maui fire, an entire, you know, island up in flames, is there anything in your life right now that's in ruins? Is there any situation in your life right now that, that resonates with that picture, even if it's just as a symbol or a metaphor of it just went up in flames? Maybe your marriage you know, you look back and it was once, you know, there was that honeymoon phase or you look back at some of the great times and you look at where it is today and it's just totally crumbled away. The relationship has crumbled year over year. Your, your family situation or your community and you're experiencing just a desperate amount of loneliness. Maybe for you, you know, you look at like, yeah, a lot of people want to improve finances. It's the number two, you know, most common New Year's resolution. But for you, it's more than just I want to save a few dollars. It's like, I don't know how to pay the bills, and I don't know when I will have that answer. For you, maybe it's health. It's, it's a little bit more serious than I want to lose a few holiday pounds. It's a terminal diagnosis. It's, it's the loss of a loved one. It's your career. You know, there, there's, there's things much more serious that need rebuilding than no more sweets after the holidays, aren't there? They're very serious things. I think about the church the church in America, in some ways, is in a rebuilding season. You know, sports teams use that language. When do they use that language? After a bad season, after a difficult season, in the press conference. They're like, what are you going to do? They're like, well, we're in a rebuilding season. And the truth is, I just think about, you know, how, how difficult the last few years, really the last few decades, the church in America has been on the decline. The last few years, that decline sped up. Think of all the closures, all the difficulties, the polarization surrounding the, the pandemic. I think about the politicization and the difficult political season. By the way, just a reminder, we're in 2024. It's an election year, right? And so I just think about, it's like almost having flashbacks already to 2020, right? And I just think about all of the difficulty. And, and the reality is I've, I've encountered many people, even in our own church, who've used this language you know, of just the, the difficulty uh, of their church experience and using this language, and I haven't ever called someone this, I've heard this terminology time and time again, I feel like a church refugee, where I haven't quite given up on God, but I just, I have a lot of trouble with the church. Or think about the language of, of people who are asking a lot of questions and maybe have a lot of doubts in their faith. You know the language that we use culturally right now about that? Somebody deconstructing their faith. And maybe you've given up. You've all but given up on God. And so th this is why this series is such a big deal for us. If there's something in your life, maybe even your own faith that lies in ruins, I hope 
that you would be filled with hope once again this year. That there is nothing too broken that God cannot rebuild. Amen, church? I want to show you that picture, actually, from the Maui fire once again. Uh, What's interesting, that was a picture in National News. It was actually a a clip from National News. That building that is ablaze in uh, the picture is the Wyola Church, which is the oldest Christian church on the island of Maui. It was started in 1823. And it's very significant, many members of the royal family who converted to Christianity, uh, there's a graveyard on site in uh, that church. And uh, one of the things I found, I actually went to their website and I was like, what are they doing? They're obviously closed right now. Uh, And and yet, one of the things I found on their history page is this was not the first time that that church has been destroyed. It's actually the fifth time that church has been destroyed. So there was a windstorm. So it started in 1823, and, and the, early, you know, the early structure is a little bit more of an outdoor church, right? Mostly just a covering. In 1858, there was a terrible windstorm, and it, blew, it wasn't just like a little bit of damage. It blew the entire structure over. In 1894, there was a rubbish fire started by a church worker out back in the yard, and that rubbish fire got out of hand, and that's actually what burned down the entire church. In 1947... Another rubbish fire, probably a different guy this time. <laughs> He's not going to make that mistake again, right? But, but many years later, there was another rubbish fire. And I wonder at what point they made a policy, you know, that there's always a reason for a policy. It's like no burning trash on church ground. But it, it burned down again, and then there was another windstorm in, in 1951. And what I found that was interesting about the church is it's been leveled five times rebuilt five times, and rededicated to the work of ministry five times. Is that not beautiful? Is that not beautiful? And that's the promise that God makes for his church. Even the gates of hell itself shall not stand against it. And so we've got to look at another kind of fire. Not just the fire of destruction, not just the fire of defeat. We've got to look at another kind of fire. And I recognize whenever there's loss... We've got to grieve through that, don't we? And I'm not here to minimize if you're in a season of of grieving right now, but we cannot stay in that place of grieving. Because after you're done grieving, you get to a point where you really have two options. You want to know what those two options are? Two different statements. I give up or let's get to work. What, What choice are you going to make in 2024, church? Are we going to be the kind of church that says, you know what? Maybe faith's not for me. Maybe marriage is not for me. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not for me. Are, you gonna be, are we going to be the kind of people that, yeah, it's going to be work, brick by brick, but we believe in a God of the resurrection, don't we? We believe in a God who can raise the dead to life. And so we're going to be a church full of living hope that gets to work. Are you excited about this? Yeah. Woo, I'm excited about this. Okay, let's look at the second fire, okay? Again, we're, we're going to get to Nehemiah next week. This week, what I'm going to do is I want to set the stage for Nehemiah. So instead of moving forward to the rebuilding of the walls, I actually want to go backwards 371 years from the siege of Jerusalem, okay? 371 years. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles 7 if you're there. Starting in verse 1. This is the dedication of the temple. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. 
And all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. And they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Can we read that, that quote out loud together? Read it like you've just seen the fire of God. For, the, for he is good. Ready? Let's read it together. One, two, three. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen? The people can't help but worship God in this moment because they've just seen this amazing manifestation of God's glory. This is another fire, but it's a different kind of fire. Can you tell? It's not the fire of defeat or destruction. This is the fire of glory. It's the fire of God's presence. And it's the fire of approval instead of wrath. See, this this same kind of thing takes place actually numerous times throughout Scripture. I'll give you a few other ones. When the tabernacle is completed, before they had a temple, they had, they, the, the nation of Israel was on the move. And so they needed a portable place of worship. That's the tabernacle. You can read about this in Exodus 40. But as soon as the tabernacle is completed, God's glory fills that place and the priest cannot enter it. There's a priestly inauguration in Leviticus chapter 9 where Aaron and his sons, the priesthood, essentially they're dedicating themselves, consecrating themselves. They, they prepare all these sacrifices and boom. Fire from heaven, they don't even have to light the altars up because fire from heaven consumes those sacrifices. That's not the fire of wrath, that's the fire of God's approval. And then there's this, this really fun story, I would love for you to read it this week. First Chronicles chapter 21, where David buys a man named Ornan, Ornan's field, and it actually would later become the future home of the temple. And he goes to this, this man, he's a Jebusite, he goes, he buys his field, if initially uh, he won't, you know, Ornan's like, I'll give it to you for free. And David's like, no. Like, you know, there's, a, there's actually a beauty in things costing something. He's like, I want to buy this from you. And he builds an altar and the same thing happens. Fire falls from heaven. This is what it teaches us about God, okay? The first thing it teaches us is that God is powerful. Do you believe that? Yes. God is powerful. I think about Elijah versus the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. You can read about this. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, where there's this challenge to see which God is real. I mean, God makes these statements about himself that there's no other like him, and yet there are times where God proves that. And he's, he's real. He's powerful. And, and you, have you, anyone ever tried to start a fire with, like, wet firewood, by the way? It's really hard. I grew up in Alaska, and we had, fi- you know, fires in the woods, firehouse all the time, but then it was always difficult when it snowed a lot like this, and the wood's all wet. It can be done, but you need a lot of gasoline, okay? And I uh, probably shouldn't have done that when I was like 13 years old, but Elijah has this challenge with the prophets of Baal, and they're like crying and, and screaming at heaven, and they're cutting themselves, and, and there's no fire. There's not even a spark. And Elijah's like, douse this altar with water. Because I just want to show you how powerful, how real my God is. And he says a simple prayer and boom, fire falls from heaven. And consumes even the stones that the altar was built out of. And for you, maybe you're here and you're just not sure if God's real. Would you, would you pray to God and ask him to show you his power? To show you how real, in fact, he is. Those of us who follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it's because, not, it's not just an intellectual thing that we, that we thought our way into the kingdom of heaven. We've experienced the power and the realness of God. Amen? Amen. And maybe it's been, there's these significant moments, and maybe it's been a while since you've had one of those significant moments, but I want to fill you with faith again today that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He's still powerful. The second thing we learn from this fire is that God is holy. Not even the priests can go in. Not even the most holy people in the nation are holy enough to be in God's unfiltered, raw presence. That's what glory is. Glory is God's own goodness manifesting from himself. It's his own holiness, his righteousness, his purity. It's why we can't be in God's presence without being totally consumed by that. And this reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah actually gets a glimpse, a vision into the throne room of heaven. And he sees the seraphim, the, the, these, these burning ones, these angels, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is full of his glory, and God is still holy today. And then the third thing that this, this shows us is that, that when people gather together for worship, it, it's pleasing to God. God loves it. I mean, that's that idea of approval. When, when people come together and they, they, they came to offer sacrifices, God, when he rains down fire, it's a way of saying, yes, you've done something good that I approve of. And guess what? It's still pleasing for God when his people come together and recognize his power and recognize his glory and recognize his holiness. And that's why it's so good for us to be together worshiping God. And yet, I just want to acknowledge that there are times in our lives that make it difficult to worship God. True? I mean, think about the contrast between those two fires. You have the fire of God's glory and his presence filling the temple, and the people, they're not even prompted. You don't need someone getting up here on a microphone like, all right, let's all stand and sing. Like, you don't need someone to tell you to worship. The people just unprompted, falling on their faces, for he is good, for he is, you know, they're just falling on their faces and they're worshiping God. But then you think about this other fire, the destruction of Jerusalem, people being ripped out of their, their homes. And Psalm 137 records the response of the people in Babylon. They say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And maybe you're here today in the new year, and maybe you feel a little bit more like the fire of destruction has hit your life where you feel like you come together for worship and you're hoping to be filled with hope. You want something to spark inside of you, and yet the reality is the, the, the music starts, but you can't quite get the words out of your mouth. And I want to teach you, if you're in that place, I want to teach you maybe a different way for you to still worship and declare God's goodness, even when it's difficult, even when you're a season of grief. You see, if you're here and, and, and God, you're in a season where God is blessing your life and it's so evident and you're seeing his power, we need to hear your voice on Sunday. Amen? Like we need to hear your shouts of praise. We need, because what that's going to do is that's actually going to minister to people who are experiencing that fire of destruction, the rubble in their lives. But if you're in that place, you can actually say the same words, declare the same truth, but you can do it in a different way. You don't, have to, you don't have to show up and, and wear a happy face because you're in church. You don't have to pretend that everything's okay. There, there's, there is such thing as a holy kind of grief that we can enter into, but we have to be careful because we're not people who grieve without hope. And so we can still declare God's goodness even in the valley. We can still declare his, his mercies every morning. And so I want to teach you, this is just a simple tool called a breath prayer. Maybe some of you have prayed, prayed this way often. Maybe some of you never pray this way. This is actually, you, you just take a simple line or, or specifically two lines from scripture 
and you declare them quietly, either by whispering them quietly to yourself as you breathe in and breathe out, or if, even by just saying them in your heart as you breathe in and breathe out. So this is actually, you can, you can put it on the screen. What we're going to do is this is the same line that the people were shouting in Second Chronicles 7. And what I want to do is I want to just do this three times. What we're going to do is you can, if you want to get comfortable, you can even close your eyes if you prefer not to speak it out loud. If you want to speak it out loud, you can do so with me. But we're just going to breathe in slowly and say, for he is good. And then you can breathe out slowly and say, his steadfast love endures forever. Would you join me in that? We're going to do that three times. If, you, if it's more comfortable for you to close your eyes, go ahead. Everyone breathe in together. For he is good. Breathe out. Steadfast love endures forever. Two more times. Breathe in. For he is good. Breathe out. Steadfast love endures forever. One more time. Breathe in. For he is good. And breathe out. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. And whether you're saying those same truths, shouting them in a worship gathering or praying them quietly in your room by yourself, we must be people who still come together and worship God. Let's look at the dream. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. So it was the dedication of Solomon's temple, but then a little bit later this happens. Solomon has a dream, and it's the second significant dream that Solomon has. The first one comes early in his reign. This one comes about 20 years later. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heaven so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is a very famous passage from the Old Testament. And before we jump into what God is looking for from us and three promises that God gives, what I want to look at is just a little bit of context that the reality is a lot of people love the promises that God gives about forgiveness and healing and, and all that. And that's, that's true. We'll get there in just a moment. But we have to recognize is that God actually gives a warning here. Do you see the warning? And very often, when Israel was experiencing a time of peace and prosperity, you see warnings that go something like this. I know things are good now, because the people have been faithful now, and God is sending his blessing now. But here's the warning. Continue to obey. Continue to experience God's blessing. But if you disobey, if you start worshiping other gods, if you turn your backs on me, it, it always is phrased something like that, there will be consequences because God never blesses disobedience. And what we have to just humbly acknowledge is that the events of 2 Kings chapter 25, the fire of destruction, the siege of Jerusalem, is a result of over three centuries of constant disobedience from the people where they turned their backs on God not once and not in a few ways, but in many ways and started worshiping false gods. And God, he, he was patient with them and he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to continue to give them warnings until finally he sent the Babylonians to take them into exile. And here's what this means for us. 
is that God isn't surprised when we find ourselves in ruins. He's sovereign. Now, this isn't to say that you can look at every terrible thing that happens in your life and ask the question, so how am I being punished from God? That's not the point, right? The Israelites are in 2 Kings 25 being punished by God in that moment. And yet, we can look at our lives, and sometimes we get this idea is that how did God let this happen? Was it an accident? Is God not aware? And we kind of even pray to God like he's not, like, how, you know, do you even know what's going on in my life? Or we act like God's maybe not powerful. Like, maybe you just couldn't do anything to stop it. Or maybe God's uncaring. Well, I guess he doesn't love me anymore, right? We kind of get these ideas. We assign motives and we, we talk to God like that. And what I want to just highlight is even in the midst of rubble, God is still sovereign. He's not surprised. He's fully aware. And what it means for God to be sovereign is it means that he's still on the throne and he can give us a way back to him. And so that means instead of building a wall between us and God full of our doubts, we can actually allow God to rebuild us from that moment. And so what I want to look at is from the text, we have three things that God is asking for from us. God gives a promise, but notice it's a conditional promise. If my people... The word if is very significant there. These aren't just God's going to give blessing and, you know, to whoever or whenever or however. It says if my people. So God is actually asking for three things. Maybe these are three betters New Year resolutions for you. Okay? I mean, yeah, sure. Hit that diet for a few weeks or whatever. But these are like three you know, New Year's resolutions for us. Three things we offer God and then three promises that God offers for us. The first one is humility. If you're taking notes, three things we can offer God, three things God offers us. If my people humble themselves, pride is often the the initial way we get ourselves into trouble. What pride is, fundamentally, is it's the false belief that we can live apart from God. Essentially, it's the belief, I can have things my way, I can do things my way, what do I need God for? And many theologians look at the events of Genesis chapter 3 in the garden as the root of those things being pride, ultimately, it's maybe, maybe I would do a better job making the rules than God would. Maybe I could be my own, my own ruler. Maybe I can, like Burger King says, have it your way, right? It's this, this idea. And so the first step home, back to God, is to acknowledge we need a Savior. We need God's help. I think about Christ's words in Matthew 23, 12, that says, whoever humbles himself will be, or exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be will be exalted. And I don't know about you, but, but I look around at the world and I see a lot of people trying to exalt themselves, trying to, to work their own way into success. And I don't know about you, but I would rather be someone who humbles myself and allows God to lift me up or to lift us up at the proper time. And so in humility, we worship God and recognize accurately. Humility is not low self-esteem. I would say humility is an accurate perspective of who you are, right? And so it's looking at yourself in comparison to God, and, and we have no other response other than worship to him, because he is powerful. He is beyond, and it's looking at yourself in comparison to others, and considering the interests and the needs of others before your own. That's the first thing God is looking for. What if that made it on the top Five New Year's resolutions, more humility, improved humility. You know, a lot of people want to improve their fitness or their finances, but what if we were like, because you have two options when it comes to gaining humility. You want to know what they are? I'll tell you what they are. You can humble yourself, or you can be humbled 
by someone or something else. Another word for that is humiliation. So what do you want? Do you want to have to go through humiliation to learn humility? Or do you want to be someone who humbles yourself before the Lord and allows him to exalt you? The second thing God is looking for is hunger. Hunger. If my people pray and seek my face, God says. See, I think we live in a culture that's so full of everything else. What do we do with Netflix? We binge Netflix. What do we do with content? We consume content. What do we do with our schedules? We fill our schedules. What do we do with our finances? We spend our, so we're so full of everything else. We're so busy. We're so, you know, saturated with media and information that I don't think we have much appetite left for God. And this is perhaps one of the most significant things that we need. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, or they shall be filled. Now that word righteousness in there, what Christ means, is he means those who hunger and thirst for living in right relationship with God. For following God, for following his law, for hungering after a relationship with him. Pastor John Tyson from Church of the City, New York, they, they recently did a, a, a teaching series uh, this last year called God Comes Where He's Wanted. And that's, I mean, you can listen to that series if you want, but that's all you need to know about the series ultimately is that God has a habit of showing up where people are hungry for Him, where people desire Him, where people actually crave Him and want Him. And so what this means is it means when we do these things, when we pray, it's a way of seeking His face. It's not just a way of my New Year's resolution, I'm going to pray every day and check the box, right? When we read scripture, it's a way of seeking his face or hearing his voice. When we show up to worship, it's, it's just getting a taste of what it means for, to give God our undevoted or undivided attention for just even like an hour, right? The goal isn't that Sunday morning will fill you for the rest of the week. In fact, I want to help kind of shatter that expectation on you right now, Okay? I hope that Sunday mornings creates a greater hunger for the rest of the week so that you would seek after God's face on a daily basis. Would we be a church? And, and fasting, like getting physically hungry as a way of hungering after God. We're actually going to talk about fasting next week. Who's excited to start the year off talking about fasting, man? Oh, it's going to be good. But we've got to be a church. We've got to be a church that gets hungry. That gets hungry. And the third thing God is looking for is he's looking for repentance. He's looking for people to turn from their wicked ways. Because here's the truth. You can, in humility, acknowledge you need God's help. And you can be hungry for God. God, I want you here. I want you in my life. But if you never actually turn from the way you're living, if you never, you know, turn away from sin and you try to live your foot in both worlds, the way of this world and the way of God's kingdom, you will end up in the same exact place you are now, later on down the road. The same exact destructive cycle. How do I know? Read the book of Judges. The people were humble. They recognized whenever, whenever they were in that position where they were under oppression, they actually turned to God and cried out for help. God, we need you. God raised up a judge. He saved the people. And then what happened? Because the people were never able to, to really turn away from their sins. 
they ended up in the same exact place, that same destructive cycle again and again and again. You want to know the message that Jesus Christ, his gospel message, when he was on earth for his, his uh, earthly ministry, here's his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like the one action step Christ consistently repeated. Repent. Turn away from the kingdom of darkness and allow me to bring you into the kingdom of light. Now, I know for many people, this is, this is maybe why so many people have given up on New Year's resolutions. I found an interesting stat, by the way, when I was looking that up, that people uh, who are uh, it, below 30 years old are three times more likely to make a New Year's resolution as someone who's over 55. I don't, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not here to assign motives to you, because maybe, I mean, maybe you're in that whatever age category, and but I think there's something to be said of the fact that, you know, most New Year's resolutions don't last past the first week of February. About 80% don't make it past the first week of February. And a lot of times people say, well, I make these things by my own willpower. I try to change, and it never works. And so you get to a certain age where you've tried it time and time and time and time again, and you say, well, why don't I just, I won't be let down if I don't make a resolution, right? And that's kind of you just come to peace with that. But the reality is, when it comes to repentance, certainly there's an element of our own willingness, right? Our own willpower. I want to change. I desire to change. But the good news of the gospel is that because Christ Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil in his resurrection from the dead, change is actually possible. Is that good news? Change is actually possible possible. When we turn back to God, we believe that God can actually turn things around. Now, if we, would, if we would be a church, those are some good New Year's resolutions, by the way. You can jot those down, right? Humility, hunger, repentance. And there's three things that God promises to offer to us. The first one is relationship. God says, I will hear from heaven. And this is not just that God got the memo. You sent him an, an email, you know, a prayer, and it, it made it up there somehow. This is the idea that God is listening. He's attentive and he's attuned to your life. It's the promise that when we seek him, we will find him if we seek him with all of our hearts. Sometimes a Christian saying is that, well, you know, always pray because God always hears your prayers. Well, if you read scripture theologically, that's not an accurate statement. There are times where God says, I'm not going to listen to the prayers of hypocrites People who are just trying to manipulate me, do you think you can mock God and fool God and tell God what you want and he's always going to give it to you like a genie in the sky? He's much too wise for that, right? But I'll tell you a prayer that God is always willing to hear from you, a prayer of confession, a prayer that you offer in humility and in hunger. God, I was wrong. God, I've sinned before you. Will you forgive me? Will you wipe me clean? And, the beauty, and this is like, for me, one of the great mysteries for me, theologically speaking, that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, actually desires a relationship with me. Really? And the same is true of you. That if you would pray in humility and in hunger, if you would turn back towards him, he's listening and he desires to be in a relationship with you. The second thing God offers to us is he offers redemption. He says, I will forgive their sin. This is the primary need of every human being on planet earth. We kind of misdiagnose the problem, right? We think we just need a little bit of help with our finances or a little bit of better relational skills or we think we need this, that, or the other. The fundamental problem of all the brokenness we experience on earth is sin, which means the primary need that each human being has is forgiveness. 
We need someone to actually wipe us clean, to take our hearts of stone and give us back a heart of flesh. And we might wonder sometimes in our perception of God, how willing is God to forgive my sin? I'll tell you how willing God is to forgive your sin. He's so willing that he sent his one and only son to this world to die in your place on the cross, to suffer and face the wrath of God in your place on the cross so that we wouldn't have to and so that we could be forgiven. That's redemption. That's the price of freedom that God has given for us. And three days later, how powerful is Christ to forgive our sins? Three days later, he rose from the grave and he offers you a new life in him. And then the third promise that God has here is is to heal their land. This is the promise of restoration. Or we might say this is the promise of rebuilding. God cares not just about our guilt being wiped away, but he cares about us being freed from the power of sin in our lives. And for you, once again, maybe you've kind of lost hope. Maybe you still believe in God, but you've lost hope that God can actually do something with the rubble of your life, and I'm here to tell you there is no brokenness that is too torn down that God cannot rebuild. He is the God of the resurrection. And so I'm asking you, these same, these same things that God is looking for, would we be a church? Would you humble yourself? Would you hunger after God? Would you turn back towards him? Because this year, this isn't the year that we give up, this is the year that we get to work. Amen? We have an opportunity to celebrate baptisms uh, today. Abby is the first one getting baptized. Abby, you can come on down. Where's, where's Abby? We can celebrate for Abby. I want to encourage you. If you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to consider that step of baptism. You can learn more about it. Hillcityboise.org slash baptism. A quick story, though. Uh, this is our very first baptism of 2024. Always huge. So cool to start off the new year, you know, uh, with, with a, a celebrating new life in Christ. Last year, I want to show you a picture. This is a picture from the first baptism of last year. Uh, that's Jake baptizing Eric. And what's so cool is next service, Eric is going to be baptizing his friend Dallin. Yay. Isn't that awesome? One of the other uh, resolutions I talked about was uh, in, the, in the last kind of Sunday before Christmas Eve, there's really this one question. I hope that you wrote it down. Who will you disciple? Who will you disciple? Because the, the goal is that we would see more of that. That's what's called spiritual generations, where people experience God's movement in their life, and then they now have the gospel, and they go and share that with others and disciple others, and they get to baptize others. And who knows, maybe next January, Dallin's going to be down here baptizing someone else. Who knows? But let's, let, let's get ready to celebrate uh, with Abby as she makes this declaration of faith through baptism. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.